Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm rocking. I'm rolling. Everything is good. Couldn't be better. Man, I'm glad to hear that, and uh, I'm especially glad since uh, a lot has happened this last week. By the time everyone is listening to this, you're across the water, as my dad used to say. You're in Japan, of all places, and uh, I guess you might want to catch everybody up and let them know what's going on. Yeah, a good friend of mine from um, early New Japan Pro Wrestling, or I should say New Japan Pro Wrestling from you know in the 80s and 90s, obviously. Uh, Masa Saido. Masa was one of the key executives in New Japan Pro Wrestling who was really instrumental throughout the, the 90s in particular of bringing, as they refer to them, gaijin or foreigners, in our case Americans, to wrestle over in Japan. And at the time, New Japan was one of the biggest wrestling organizations in the world. They dominated the wrestling scene in Japan in the 90s when I was doing business with them. And Masa and I became very, very, very good friends and, and his wife, Michi. Masa passed away last year, and uh, Michi reached out to me and asked me if I would uh, be so kind to join them in a, a memorial event honoring Masa Saito. It's a big wrestling event in Osaka, so I'm going to be speaking at that event and, and seeing some people I haven't seen in a long time. I'm sure Muda, Masa, Jono, and hopefully Inoki, and, and all the other people that I worked with uh, long ago in New Japan Pro Wrestling. So I'm looking forward to it. It will have been a fun event. I know we're doing this show in advance of that, but I'm confident that uh, when I get back, I'll tell you all kinds of wonderful stories about the event. The just copious amounts of raw fish I will have eaten during that period of time, and uh, a funny son- Sonny Ono story or two. Well, we're looking forward to that. We're going to do a little ADD action today. We're going to be all over the place, man. And uh, rapid fire questions, a thousand different topics going a thousand different directions. This is going to be fun. Uh, and, and it's one of those shows where I like the most because I do enjoy the deep dives, but this allows us to cover a lot of ground in one episode. We asked you, God, I'm, you, you, I'm, I'm fuck. I'm intimidated now. Why? The way you just set that up just scared the hell out of me. Well, good. We're going to be over here. We're going to be over there. We're going to cover this. We're going to cover that. We're going to do all this stuff. We're going to be all over the place. I'm a linear thinking motherfucker. I'm not all over the place. Okay. Oh my God. Let, let's, let's do this. Let's set some ground rules because we've got, I mean, very quickly, we've got over a thousand questions and there's no way we can get to a thousand answers, but I do want to get to as many as we can. we asked you to reply to one of the show accounts, whether it was Twitter, or Instagram, or Facebook or whatever, and use the hashtag ask Eric. So hopefully use that. And if you have, it's in my purview. But Eric, I want to lay some ground rules. I want to do rapid fire. So every now and again, if you want to get in the weeds, let's get it. But if you get deep in the weeds on every question, then we're only getting to like 10 of these today. Fair enough. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say something because this is not how I operate. You no. know, if you ask me what time it is, I'm going to tell you how to fucking make a watch. It's true. <laughs> so this is going to be different, but okay, let's do it. All right, let's get started and let's do one of the more popular questions. We get this version of this question. At least once a week since we started the show. This time, it's from Josh Kuhn. Answer the age-old question, in your opinion, Eric, who is the biggest star in the history of the wrestling business, Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin? Hulk Hogan. I agree. Look, look, you can probably create a story that will allow you to believe and support what you believe 
logically, regardless of whether you think it's Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin. Steve Austin, if you just measure money, Steve Austin. If you measure the overall impact on the industry at a time when it was most critical and how Hulk Hogan actually, along with Vince McMahon, helped launch what we know now as WWE, I, I'd have to tip my hat to Hogan. But there's there's no right answer. They're both correct in their own way. Uh, DJ Hans wants to know if you were to choose talent for a new promotion, who would you build your entire roster around? So don't, uh, DJ didn't say this, but don't give me 30 different talents. Give me one. You're going to have one guy be your Hulk Hogan, like in 1994 for you and WCW. You're going to have one guy be the guy you build everything else around. Who's your blue chipper? Who's your number one draft pick? Becky Lynch. Really? Yeah. Wow, I didn't see that coming. That's a great answer, but I didn't expect that answer from you. Yeah, I am such a. F- and here's what's really cool, and I'm going to probably tip my hat a couple times to you know the the group over at um, AEW. She she has figured it out. She has found the crack that allows her to walk through a door. And connect with people on social media like nobody else in the WWE universe or anybody else in the wrestling business has been able to do. That I can tell. She is right on the edge of too dangerous, meaning going too far, that it's either obvious or that it's mean-spirited or whatever. She walks right up to that edge where it starts to become dangerous and you start to feel like, oh, well, whoever she's talking about is going to be really pissed when she reads that. I mean, yeah, they can do whatever they want on WWE TV because we know that's you know, a bunch of writers script that. But when it when Becky tweets something out, and I've heard her do it in interviews too because I follow her. I don't watch her a lot on TV, but I, I follow her in social media and I kind of study what she does. And or not study, but it, I'm a fan of. That's a better way to say it. And she just has a way of connecting with an audience. And I think, you know, that's what the Bucks did. How the hell did they sell, you know, 10,000 seats in 27 minutes, 28 minutes and do a million dollars in pay-per-view off of YouTube? They did it because they knew how to connect. So I think, you know, that that's the connection that I wanted to make there. But I think talent now, and certainly producers, but producers are hard, they're, they're slower to learn new tricks by, by nature. But talent is going to find a way to tap into that. And then you're going to see other Becky Lynch's and she's going to become the standard. She's going to become the stone cold Steve Austin promo. She's going to become the Ric Flair promo. Everybody wanted to hear. She's going to be the eat your, you know, eat your vitamins, say your prayers, whatever Hulk Hogan. She's going to be that standard if she keeps going the way she's going. And a lot of other talent are going to have to play up to that standard if they want to not embarrass themselves. And that's why I pick her because I think, you know, I, you know, she'd raise the tide. I think the tide would rise around her and, and because of her. So there you go. Sorry. Long-winded answer. No, no. Great answer. Donnie G wants to know where were you during the Vince McMahon raw nitro simulcast? So the very last episode of nitro, we know that Vince did a simulcast at the end. Did you watch it live? And if so, where were you? I was eating a uh, sirloin steak at the Longhorn Steakhouse in Mableton, Georgia, with my wife. And you watched my kids. Watched it on the bar TV? Nope. I had no interest at all in watching it. None. I was, I, don't get me wrong. I wasn't angry. I wasn't, you know, pissy. I wasn't, you know, bitter. None of that. I was just like, okay, that 
period of my life is over. Boom. It's time to close the door and move on. You can't sit here, you know, hanging around the door, hoping somebody opens it back up for you, invites you in again. It's like, fuck, move on, man. Doors closed. Get going. And that's kind of what I did. Josh Kuhn, he asked another good question here. Who would you want on your backstage team? If you were to start a new company today? So we got lots of questions like, Hey, who would you want to build around? Who would you see money in? You gave us Becky Lynch, but behind the scenes, is there a guy right now who you think maybe doesn't get his just due, who you would love to work with and think really has his finger on the pulse of wrestling? I'm sure there's several of them, uh, at this point. You know, you just think about all the people that have come through, you know, WWE and that's, that's, you know, uh, it's like the gold standard, right? If you can survive there, you can survive anywhere in television. And I think if, you know, there, there are probably people that I don't even know who have been with WWE backstage for a long time in various capacities that would probably be available or are available. And that's where I would start for all kinds of staffing positions in production. But if I had to hire just one guy to help oversee and execute on that tactic, um, it would be Keith Mitchell. And I say that because, you know, I, I probably made, I'm not going to say it was the wrong decision, but it wasn't the most correct decision I could have made um, by not putting Keith in a more meaningful role on the production side of things. Um, I, I realized that when it was too late and then got the opportunity to work with Keith again in TNA. And we're going to keep this short. So fast forward, zip. You know, when I first started TNA, I had no influence control, didn't even want any, to be honest with you. But towards the end, I started having more fun. I was more involved in creative and more involved in working hands-on with directors and, and, and producers and cameramen and that kind of thing, because that's what I really love. And I really, really tried to make up for lost time by um, engaging Keith on a lot broader you know, spectrum of issues when it came to creative and production as opposed to just production, which is the way, you know, he operated in the past. And when I did, I realized just really how smart this guy is. You know, he doesn't have that kind of personality where he's going to, you know, push himself or push his ideas or, you know, lobby or play politics. He's, he's the antithesis of that. He's just a good, quiet dude that just does phenomenal work and for the most part people don't realize how good he is including me i uh as, as odds or as luck would have it i worked with keith mitchell for the first time a couple of weeks ago at the little AEW rally and, I, and before that i'd never even met him so if he was right in front of me i wouldn't have known that was him but dude he is the most i was i was gonna say when you said that name like i wanted to give you a high five because i'd heard his name for decades I didn't really know, you know, what he was like or anything about him, but he's the most professional shit together on task, like everywhere you need him to be. He thought of stuff before anybody else could, and he saw what the problems could be and knew how to navigate them. And he's got his shit together. AEW did a great thing finding him. He is. And here's the thing, you know, and here's some, you know, free advice to who is ever listening or not. Um, Keith is a guy who is not going to lean forward into areas that aren't his core domain. Meaning, if someone hires him, if AEW hires him and say, look, we want you to you know, be over all of our production, Keith can do that in his sleep. 
he's he's been doing that at a very high level, incredibly capably, for probably thirty years. That is not a challenge for for him. But if they're if anybody who's listening is really smart, what they're going to also tap into because of economies of scale, since he's on your team anyway, is he's seen it all. He's seen it all. The good, the bad, the magnificent, the fucking horrid. And not only has seen it all, but understood why. He He's a good why guy. And... If, the, if, if you can engage him on the creative side to a degree that everybody's comfortable, but he deserves a lot of respect in that area, and I doubt very many people recognize that. Let's get another question here. This one's from Louie. Sting, Bobby Heenan, Roddy Piper, and Medusa all appeared on Politically Incorrect in the late 90s and made Bill Maher look like an idiot in the process, including Piper dropping his pants. How were these folks chosen to appear on the show? And do you have any memories or stories about their appearances? I just want to make a comment that the fact that, you know, the very you know high profile group from WCW going to Bill Maher's show and making him look like an idiot is not particularly a big deal. I mean, Bill does that to himself every night. <laughs> that said, I have, I don't remember it at all. That was probably, it was set up through PR and, uh, yeah, through PR and I had nothing to do with it. I, if I was aware of it, I didn't watch it. So I, I don't even know what it looked like. And I know that sounds horrible. Like I didn't care, but I had a lot of other stuff to do. Jonathan hood wants to know if you were starting a new promotion, which platform would you shoot for digital slash online or a traditional television network? Hands down. It would take me less time to make that decision than I've spent setting it up right now. I wouldn't go near traditional television. It's, it's a fool's game. I know that's going to be controversial, particularly under the circumstances of, you know, any or AEW, you know, coming out and all of that. I know there's a lot of buzz about television, but, um, it's too expensive. It will be too expensive. I don't care what anybody says. It's going to be really, really expensive. It's going to put, uh, episodic TV is going to put, cause if it's every week, you know, you've got to come up with new stories. Characters got to evolve stories, start moving fast. A lot of things change when you're doing episodic TV and it's a lot of pressure that people have no idea, um, they're going to be under or how they're going to handle it. That said, streaming provides you all of the flexibility in the world. You can program your channel the way you want it programmed. If it's once a week, if it's twice a week, if it's once a month, whatever, you can grow at your own pace. You don't need a middleman. There are advertisers. If you're smart and you work with some really smart people in, in the whole inter- internet side of the equation, um, you can, you'll be getting advertisers for your stream probably quicker than you'll be getting avenue, uh, advertising revenue from traditional television. Um, you can reach people around the world as opposed to being defined geographically or even, you know, domestically. Um, there's just a, about a million reasons why streaming is a much better idea than television. And I can't, can't be emphatic enough about that, really. Dave Martinez wants to know, I know you've stated that TNA was bound for failure regardless of what was on TV, but it felt like leading up to the hardy turn, the product was making a turn in the right direction. Did Jeff's drug issues irreparably change that momentum? And can you speak on the effect of it? 
I'm not exactly sure I understood that question completely. I understand most of it. I don't, you know, if I ever said, you know, TNA was never going to succeed no matter what, I, th I think the context of when I said that was would probably be really important. Um, and I don't remember saying, I'm certainly not denying that I did, but it's hard for me to to respond to that part of the question, number one. Number two, it's not that I, and, and, and I'll try my best to respond to it a little bit. I, I never thought there was no way in the world TNA was ever going to make it. There was a long period of time or a period of time where I felt absolutely convinced it would. As the relationship with Spike TV started getting better, uh, because that relationship got better, Spike TV actually spent about a million dollars on a marketing campaign uh, for TNA that didn't cost TNA a dime. And when I saw them doing that, when I learned that uh, you know uh, Spike TV, Viacom, uh, was literally funding Hulk Hogan's paycheck as, and mine, that our, our, our fees, and this is public information, by the way, I'm not revealing anything that nobody's ever heard before. It's actually been in the paper and it was in an article, uh, where the head of marketing at, or PR at Viacom was being quoted. So don't take my word for it, but uh, Viacom Spike paid for Hulk Hogan. They paid for Eric Bischoff. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but there were other main talents, big, big contract talents that in to one degree or another, large or small Viacom was funding. So when you have a relationship with a network like that, you've got potential, but it's up to you to figure out what to do with it. And where I became disenchanted, and when I, you know, when I got there, their relationship was good. By the way, I, I don't want to suggest it wasn't when I showed up. It was already good. Um, it got better as I began working with them more closely, and we, st I started pushing things like research, for example, which they really liked. Um, the episodic way that I approach creative, which is different than what they were used to, which they liked. I actually, and this is something I haven't talked about before. You know, I actually forced the issue because of my relationship with Kevin Kay and, and some of the other people over at um, Viacom or Spike at the time, uh, Scott Fishman, I forced TNA to sit down and write an eight-week story Bible where we defined all of the characters that we're going to see for the next eight weeks, what their individual stories are, what their characters, characters were, what the arcs were what the A, B, and C stories were in each one of those episodes. And we had to put that all together and present it for approval by Spike TV. Because that's how television really works in the real television world. Not in the kind of weird relationships, you know, scenario that wrestling often has with a network. Because the networks don't know anything about how a wrestling company works. So wrestling companies have always historically, it's not as, can't do it anymore. But historically, they've kind of kept that, you know, creative, keep, keep that secret sauce a little secret. So the network doesn't feel comfortable sending their writers and producers in to listen to what's going on. That's why so many promoters uh, in over the years have been able to kind of get away with the things that they got away with, with, with networks. Now, that's different today. It's really, really different today. But there you go. I'm in the weeds. Sorry. Cut it off there. I love you. Uh, Phil White wants to know, I attended the April 10th, 2000 Nitro in Denver when WCW was rebooted. As a fan, I felt optimistic. How did the talent, including yourself and behind the scenes personnel feel about the new direction of the company? 
And also by that point, did you know Russo was a used car salesman? Really good question. I'll handle the last part first. No, I didn't. I was very hopeful. I, I think I said this in my book, or maybe I said it in the interview. It's just too hard to remember anymore. It when Brad Siegel called me and said, Hey, do you think you can work with Vince Russo? My response was, I don't know Vince Russo, so I can't give you an honest answer, yes or no. He set up a meeting between Vince and I. I went into that meeting with an open mind. I know myself well enough that if I go into an, a meeting or whatever with a, with a closed mind or I've already made up my mind up, very little is going to change it. And I know that's a flaw. That's a weakness. It's a bad way to be. And I've known that most of my life. So I went into that meeting going, you know what? Brad called me. I have respect for Brad. You know, maybe there's a way, maybe, you know, we can turn something good out of this. So I went in with a good attitude. I wanted to like Russo. Russo is a very charming guy who is easy to like, even if you don't want to like him. So it was easy for me to connect with Vince once really because I knew that's what I wanted to do because I felt that was the right thing to try to do is to get along with this cat. And besides, he had never done anything to me at that point. You know, I may or not have believed he was good or bad or indifferent, but there was no personal issue there, right? He didn't fire me. So I tried, but it, it took about 90 days. You know, the first here's, here's, here's the first the easiest way to tell when Vince Russo doesn't have an idea of what he's talking about creatively. If you're in a meeting with him, he goes, we're, uh, we're going to have Russell A, you know, and do, do this. And then there's going to be this big schmoz and, and then somebody's going to come out. And so he'll, he'll paint a picture that looks like, you know, fucking battle at Gettysburg, you know, and he'll, and he'll do it in a way that I'm like, you go, Oh man, that's going to be, Oh man, that's awesome. I mean, he's really, and I'm not saying this as a, as an offhanded compliment, he's really, really good at that. I mean, really good. And even people who are who have become cynical to him, like me, all of a sudden I'll find myself leaning in like I'm getting fucking hypnotized, like some voodoo woman that I met down in New Orleans is all of a sudden sucking whatever's left out of my con- common sense, out of my brain. And, and then I catch myself. I go, oh, oh, man, he almost had me again. <laughs> but it took me about three months to get to that point let's talk about uh and and we got variations of this question you know i i I don't know you're gonna get tired of getting it but it's all anybody's talking about sean wants to know hypothetically eric's just been hired by aew what are the first three decisions eric would make and why i'd fire eric (laughs) because he's the wrong guy in that spot I would find I'd, I'd fire the next guy underneath Eric, um, unless that person had a really alternative way of looking at the business of the wrestling business and wasn't trying to follow that same old traditional wrestling model, revenue model now, business model. So I would look for I would look for whoever my probably my oh my CFO is, and I'd really want to sit down with that CFO um, and and say, okay, where do you see? How, how are we going to handle all these startup expenses? Because this is a big front-end load we got going on here. We're going to be hiring talent. We're going to be doing this. We're going to be doing that. We're going to MGM Grand. We're doing blah, 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 blah. And when you get done blah, 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 and there's a lot of money laying on the table that you got to spend. And then you got to look over to the other side of the room and go, okay, where are we going to make it back? 
And I think if if you're in that position, no matter how much money you have, event, there's a reason people have a lot of money. Like people are billionaires because they're really smart. They don't like to give it up, generally speaking anyway. And at some point, no matter how much money somebody has or how much passion they have, uh, it's got to start making sense on paper, right? So you got to start thinking about those revenue streams. And if you're only thinking about how much money am I going to make in advertising, you're, you're starting out in the grave. You're, you're actually in the grave. They just haven't thrown dirt on you yet if your first thought is ad sales because ad sales is going further and further and further to the digital side of the world and farther and farther and farther away from television. That's like – that's it, man. That's all you got to know. You don't have to know anything else but that, and and it will dramatically change your your – your options or your, your odds of success. And then below that, that CFO or whoever is in charge of building out their, their financial model. Um, hmm. Man, I'd have a really good attorney. So I'd sit down with that attorney and say, okay, who are you? What have you done? Who have you beat? How many times have you been in litigation? How many times have you been first chair in litigation? And what's your record? And then depending on that answer, I'd either go find the most qualified attorney I could possibly find. So that will be my three hires and fires. Juice Springsteen wants to know, can you give us any details on this obscure name from WCW? He got immortalized on a trading card and he posted a picture of a WCW main event training card with a guy named Frank Anderson with two S's, which I have to admit, even I didn't recognize do you remember frank anderson not only you see these questions are so awesome i can't answer them quickly because of this too there's too much gold there and then we're never going to do this again and you're never going to ask me that question again and i'm not ever going to be able to share the gold so here comes the gold i'm ready i hired frank anderson i recruited frank anderson Frank Anderson was an Olympic uh, uh, Olympic wrestler on the Swedish freestyle Olympic wrestling team. He was badass, and he looked like a freaking movie star. Connor, did you see his picture in that card? Yeah. I mean, he looked, he had the best look in the business, and he was a legit. I mean, Olympic freestyle wrestling champion. So it's not like a tough guy in a street corner kind of thing. This guy was the shit, and he had a great personality, and he was from Stockholm. So And he spoke fluent English, but he spoke it with that Swedish accent. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, every guy's going to want to be like him. Every woman's going to want to screw him. That's, according to Scott Hall, the magic formula. I found gold in Stockholm. And I recruited him. It just didn't work out. Why didn't it work out? Just didn't have it, whatever it is? He was having issues as I recall, he had a girlfriend or maybe it was an ex-wife or fiance, some, some kind of real, you know, serious relationship with a woman. And there was a, a young child involved. And I'm not sure if they were married or whatever that was, but that, that's, it was serious drama for him being away from home. Um, he had travel all over the world. It's not like he'd never been out of the country, but he was away from everything. He was away from family. He was away from his relationship with his son or daughter and baby mama. So it just got to be too stressful for him. And I don't think he put 100% of his heart into it. I think he wanted to, but shit got in the way and he didn't. And it just kind of fizzled. 
Elliot wants to know when internet fans found out you could press zero during the message on the cat bow number and access the Turner phone system. Did you get any particularly interesting phone calls? I actually had a very nice conversation once with Terry Taylor that way. That's way deep in the weeds, but it is interesting that fans found a way to get into the phone directory. You know, I've heard this, you know, I, I, it never made my, never made it to my radar when it happened. It just wasn't an incident that required to get to my desk. So I, I wasn't involved or aware when it actually happened. No, i subsequently heard about it. And since we've been doing these podcasts and my social media has blown up over the last year or so, I get it a lot more. So I certainly know it happened, but, um, I don't know how it happened. I don't remember what kind of interactions people may have had with fans, but hand it to wrestling fans. They are resourceful. I mean, I'm not going to tell you some of the things that still occur to me on a regular basis that I'm shocked at because people actually take the time to do their research. And, and, and by that, I mean, you know, when I go to an airport, if I go on social media and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm flying to LA tomorrow, you know, going up to Billings, flying out of LA tomorrow. I guarantee you now that I, well, of course it'll be too late because I've already done it. But if I say that in a live environment, even if I tweet it out sometimes, depending on where I'm going in and out of, I'll have people showing up at the airport. Hey, can I get an autograph? Hey, can I get a picture? I, I, I swear to God, it doesn't happen all the time. Certainly. And, and, a lot less so <laughs> lately, I mean, over the last 10 years, but there was a time, you know, and I mean, people are smart. Wrestling fans are smarter. So here's a fun question. And I've got two back to back, but this one is way deep in the weeds, but I think you'll get a kick out of it. Paul wants to know, is it true that Eric mercilessly egged houses on Dodge street in the sixties? I need to know if my grandparents got hit by the Eric Bischoff that they said it was. He was probably the only one on the block at the time. Whoa. Were you a little house egging motherfucker? What a shithead kid you were. I just got heebie jeebies. Whoa. Let me, let me, now let me catch myself here. Did this, did this person who wrote that in, did, did he say, or she say that the parents his or her parents said that I'm the one that did it. Uh, grandparents. I was there. It was his grandparents house. that said that you were one of the little snot nosed kids on the street who would egg the shit out of their house. Whoa. Yes. We used to do that. My gosh. You've always eggs, been an asshole. Oh, even as a bro, kid. Eggs and, and tomatoes. Oh yeah. And here's a, here's the horrible thing. A lot of the houses on that street, um, it had brick siding. So you'd throw that shit up against a house and it would stick. It wouldn't like just run off. You could hose it off real easy. That shit would all stick in there and you wouldn't even see it right away. Cause it kind of gets blended in with the brick. And then after about four hours with the sun beating down on it, you come out the door, you walk out to your car, you get a big old face full of fucking rotten egg. It was awesome. I love you for that. Oh my gosh. All right. Uh, Peter George wants to know what did Eric think of Sting's booking in WWE and what would he have done differently? If anything? Oh, okay. Here's, here's my disclaimer. Everybody. I don't do this shit. I don't look at what other people have done and go, well, this is how I would do that because it's, it's a fool's game. It's a joke. 
um, you can't, when you're not behind the scenes, when you're not backstage, when you don't know the talent, when you don't know what the talent's goals are, you don't know what the talent's capabilities are, you don't know what the talent's insecurities are, you don't know how much time you're going to have with the talent. There's so many things you don't know when you're a viewer. Now, you start to jump to conclusions and make assumptions and whatever that allows you to propel said character into whatever you think is the best storyline. But the truth is you don't know anything. You don't have the enough information. I don't mean that to be dickish, but you don't have any information that allows you to really book someone or create something for someone that that could possibly work. And, and you know, I've had people, you know, because people know my relationship with Steve – and they'll say, oh, they, they ruined him in WWE. They should have really, he should have put him, they should have put, Triple H should have put him over in a baby. They should have done this. They should have done that. I'm pretty sure I've never talked to Steve about this. I'm guessing he didn't want to do any of that stuff. Steve was on his way out the door. Steve knew that he wasn't at peak performance. He knew he wasn't at WWE, you know, top level performance. He, that part of his life he was comfortable had kind of gone by and he had other things he was excited about at that time. That's my guess. Now, again, I haven't had that conversation with him, but I've had enough conversations that are about this kind of topic that I'm pretty sure I'm right. So I'm guessing, I'm guessing Steve showed up. It was an honor for him to be there. He got to walk out on that stage. He got to stand there like deer in the headlights, absorbing every single second nanosecond of energy that he could from that audience because he probably knew and wanted that to be the last time. So I don't know if I would have done it any different because I don't know if he would have wanted me to do it any different. The wrestling guru wants to know if Eric could manage one wrestler strictly as an on-air personality, like Paul Heyman does Brock Lesnar, who would it be? Mm, man, that's a tough one. It's tough because it would have to be somebody that had all of the tools like Lesnar, the look, the history, all of that, but maybe wasn't so strong on the mic because otherwise you don't need a manager. You know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense for me to manage somebody who is already great on the mic or even decent. So that, that, that changes it. Because there's people that would like to work with sure, um, that I enjoy, but they don't need me because <laughs> they already do great interviews and promos and they already have heat or whatever. So I don't know. I'd have to look at the roster more closely because I don't, I don't look at it from that point of view. I don't look for people who have weak mic skills because that's kind of a negative approach. I look for the standouts and the people that do, um, but I, I'd have to really take a look at the roster. And look for somebody that has everything else, but isn't quite connecting yet on the mic. Mauser wants to know who wasn't under the suit for Wildcat Willie. <laughs> oh God. What was his name? I can picture his face. He was a, a high school or collegiate gymnast. <clears throat> I'm not going to try too hard to remember him because I don't think I could, but, uh, he was, he was a local guy, Bob do. You know, Wildcat Willie was Bob Dew's deal. He was so excited about Wildcat Willie. And he couldn't understand why nobody else in the office was. You know, there'd be a few people that would humor him, you know, like his assistant. 
whenever his assistant would hear Bob talking about Wildcat Willing getting excited and looking at art and drawings and all that kind of stuff, he'd be just like a kid at Christmas. And everybody else would go, ah, it's a fucking stuffed cat. I mean, come on. It is what it is. (laughs) It's whatever. Yeah, little kids will like it. Little kids don't come to wrestling, but little kids will like it if they eventually do. That was kind of the the feeling that we all had at that time. The idea was a good idea. Don't get me wrong. You know, you look at a lot of live action sports that are, that's family entertainment and you have that type of thing. So I'm not knocking the idea. I just couldn't quite get as excited about it as some people. Um, but I don't know. All, all of that was handled through Bob Dew and probably Don, Don Sandifer. I'm sure they held auditions for like months at country clubs around the country that served great martinis. Joseph wants to know, were you involved with, or do you have any thoughts on the WCW run that Lance storm had, where he was holding multiple titles at the same time. And did you see Lance as a potential main eventer and world champion for WCW at some point? Uh, well, I, I didn't bring him in. So that wasn't, <clears throat> that did not happen under my watch. So obviously the creative didn't either. Um, there was a moment in time shortly after, um, I decided to, to work with Russo and come back. There was a period of time where Russo was pushing really hard on the idea of Lance Storm being my illegitimate son. Somehow, in Russo's mind, we looked alike. I never saw that. I feel bad for Lance having to live with that. But I didn't see it. Now, Russo was jacked up, excited about it, and and this was like a new relationship. You know, this was like the the shit hadn't got, gotten bad yet, right? So, in my desire to try to make it work and keep an open mind, as I discussed before, I you know I listened and I listened and I listened and I allowed myself, I guess, to be convinced that somehow the fifty-year-old Eric Bischoff or whatever I was at the time, forty-eight, was somehow the father of this twenty-eight-year-old dude. But eventually I said, no, it doesn't make sense. We can't do that. And then the rest of it, you know, during his time there, and I'm not sure the timing of the, all the championships and all that kind of thing. My overall thoughts on him were, um, I mean, he's a perfect example of somebody that needed a manager at least for a while. And he needed some consistency in his character. I think, uh, you know, it's one of those things if you made, okay, let's, how many boxes do we need to have on the checklist that we have to check till we have like a, just super perfect, you know, model of a wrestler, you know, th- that's the template right there. I think Lance probably checked eight or nine of them. Um, he just wasn't really good on the mic. There was something about the way he carried himself and it's so subtle. That's why it's so hard sometimes to figure out and tap into because it is so subtle that if, if it was easy, anybody could fix it or everybody could do it. But Lance just had that whatever it was missing was missing with Lance. And he never quite checked all the boxes. Dr. Strange blaze wants to know, how do you define the word Mark? And in your opinion, is it derogatory? I don't try to define words like that because they mean different things to different people. So my, my, my definition of it is maybe different than somebody else's. So there you go. I'm, I'm, I'm not an entomologist, nor do I care to pretend I am on a podcast, but in the in the sense that I most often hear the word used, it's derogatory. And I always think, you know, and I 
make a joke about entomology, but I actually listen to a podcast every week um, called Way With Words. It's it's also on NPR, but I download the podcast because I dig it so much. And when you take words, you kind of go back to well, where did that word come from? What was the very beginning? Who first started using that word and in what context? And the word mark to me, based on what I've read over the years, I read this first in a book called the, uh, the, the Illustrated Version of Pro Wrestling History by a guy by the name of Graham Kent out of England. It's an old, old book. You can still find it though in libraries. And you read through that book and it takes you through the whole timeline of our culture and civilization and professional wrestling and how it evolved over centuries, right? And then you get into kind of the golden era of, of wrestling and, you know, the, early, the 30s and the 40s and the beginning of television. And you read all these crazy stories about how wrestling first started. And the, the, the term mark came from the con artist that, you know, when, when you identify somebody in a crowd whose wallet is half hanging out of their pocket and they look easily distracted or distractible, um, that's a mark. Because <laughs> your buddy's going to go distract him and you're going to pick up that wallet. That's a target. It's somebody that's gullible, that's not paying attention, that doesn't, you know, is is just kind of vulnerable for whatever reason. That's how I associate that word with an image. And I think it's incredibly derogatory. Wrestling fans are wrestling fans. Yeah, I, here I'm gonna go off on a rant. I'm sorry. Fucking I'm I'm pulling out my weed card. Not the not the one I wish I had, but the wrestling fans are way smarter. They're way more demanding. They're way more fickle, which means their expectations get kind of high because they're 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 kind of like alpha about the product. And they're in and, and they have a sense of history. I man, I can't remember a third, a quarter of the shit that I the people that I meet remember about the history of WCW because they're so into the granularity of it all. They know more than I do, and they've retained more than I ever knew. Anyway, I think it's a really bad idea to refer to any wrestling fan as a mark. I mean, whether you, I don't know. I don't know. That's just how I feel. I'm not trying to convince other people how they should feel, but that's how I feel. Uh, Fernaccio on Twitter wants to know, was Rob Van Dam one of the original choices for Mortis or Glacier? No. No, <clears throat> and a side note, you know, I, I tried to get uh, Rob to come on over to WCW in it would have probably been early '99, I'm guessing. Uh, actually, had a meeting with him in Los Angeles, and really, really wanted to bring him in. Actually, I'm wrong. I'm wrong about that. It was after I put together the uh, investment group to purchase WCW and. <laughs> The, the letter of intent had been signed. That's when uh, I went out to L.A. to try to bring Rob in. And it just, Rob is a really interesting cat, you know, and he was then even more so. It He, he had a vision of himself and a goal, and it wasn't un, unrealistic. I mean, he wasn't wrong. But once he set his mind on a number, um, there was no convincing him he wasn't going to get it. And we just couldn't match it. He, he really, really wanted a lot of money. And I, and I respected him for it. You know, and he, and he didn't play any games. He was completely 
I mean, it's really hard to have, in, not hard, it's very unusual to have a talent at a high level come to you, sit down across from you and say, look, I, I know what I know what this business is about. I know what you need to do. I know what the situation is. Here's how much I think I'm worth, and I'm not going to take a nickel less. Now, if you would imagine that happening, you think, well, what an arrogant fucking prick. But it's not the way it was. He was just so down to earth and organic about it. And as, as he explained why, it was, I was like, well, yeah, you are worth it in, in many ways. Just not in a way we can afford right now. But anyway, that was that was that experiment. It wasn't even an experiment, but that was that conversation. Seven and Rob and, I, Rob and I went on to become really good friends after that, actually. Seven figures? Yeah. James Doyle wants to know, who wins in a shoot fight? You or Mr. Three-Time Karate Black Belt Hall of Famer Bruce Pritchard? I think we're going to find out. Mohegan Sun. Coming your way. I'm not mad at that. Uh, Bryant wants to know how hard was it to produce the world war three battle Royale? Uh, you know, I didn't produce, I mean, from a television point of view, I produced it, but that wasn't the most complicated part of it, you know, and the television part of it was complicated and challenging in that there was so much action going on in an environment that for your handheld cameraman who normally have, you know, pretty wide range of motion when you're standing on the corner of a ring uh typically but when you have cages and you know barriers and doors and cables and shit now you've got you know action taking place all over the place and it's not easy shooting you know from the outside of a cage to the inside or being inside the cage and shooting so it's challenging really challenging equally as challenging for a director who ultimately has to decide which of those you know collage of crazy shots you know you want to take so that it comes off at least kind of seamless um but the real hard part would have been laying that thing out you know as an agent or as they call them now wwe producer uh that would be really hard because you've got to be aware of all of those impediments and challenges that i just described you've got to try to lay out a match that at least, you know, we know we're going to get some really cool stuff on camera and we have a pretty good idea when we're going to see that really pretty cool stuff on camera. And we think we're going to be able to get the cameraman in the right position when that really cool stuff is going to happen. So it's, yeah, it's challenging. It's in, in the end product is my opinion. I know some people love cage matches. Cool. Love you for that. Get you some cage match. I don't really like them because of the aesthetic kind of challenges that they present and and the limitations that it puts on talent in the cage grant wants to know what did honky say to eric when they recently attended the same convention you know what he didn't even make eye contact with me i was really disappointed you were going to try to fire him again no no see look i've, I've spent 20 years or more listening to people bust my balls and some of those people were friends Right. And I just took it. Yeah. Every once in a while I'd fire up on an interview or do something, you know, but for the most part, I just sat back and I listened and I listened and I took it and I took it. And then you came along Conrad and it ruined your life. No, fuck. No, I'm, I'm born again. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a whole new me here. 
I found myself again. And then I said, well, wait a minute. These guys, these guys are busting my balls for the last 20 years. And when I see them, I treat them with respect. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I don't hold any grudges. You want to go sit down and have a beer? Honky, let's go have a beer. I'm still going to talk shit about you tomorrow, but I'll have a beer with you now. That's kind of the way I look at things. You know what I mean? Because for 20 years, that's what I had to do. I wasn't going to listen to you know shit that people said about me and then come across them six months later and corner them in a bar and go, why'd you say that? That wasn't true. You know, I wasn't going to do that. It's like, okay, well, fuck it. Let's just go have a beer and laugh about old times and just kind of forget about it. So I'm thinking I've been eating this shit for 20 years. They can eat it for the next 20. Ooh, alrighty. Uh, You'll be 50 when we're done doing this shit. <laughs> Mr. Anybody wants to know in TNA, what did you think of the awesome Kong Bubba the Love Sponge Haiti incident? I didn't see it. I would say I heard about it. Uh, that whole scene is just so bizarre. I mean, we could do a whole show about that. Just the circumstances, the fucking weirdness, the people involved, quirky shit that I know about some of those people, Bubba, I'm talking about specifically. I didn't know Awesome Kong. I don't think I ever said anything other than maybe hello to her passing in a hallway. And even that was brief. Because, you know, in Orlando, which is the only place I would have come across her, it was such a tight, confined, yet everything was separated. So I was like miles away from the women's dressing room. And, you know, I didn't see talent half the time till it got out to the ring unless we were kind of crossing paths and everybody was running around like, you know, uh, jackasses in the back, you know, scrambling all over the place. But for the most part, I didn't see or talk to a lot of people when I was there. Handfuls of them I did. But I didn't really know her, but I did know Bubba. And it was just, what a horrible thing. Here's an interesting question. Uh, I I hope you have fun with this one. Mark Martin Jr. says it's 1996 and you're about to form the NWO with Hall and Nash, but you can only ever add two other guys. Who would those two be? God, I love that question. See, that's a great question. Now, it's hypothetical, and typically it would fall into my not going to fucking answer that one bucket, but this is such a smart question, even though it's hypothetical that I'm going to take a whack at it. Two guys, only two. Conan and X-Pac. What? Yep. You wouldn't go Hogan? Oh, 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 no, I thought I thought we had Hogan, Hall, and Nash, and I could only add two more guys. You've got Hall and Nash. You can add two more guys. Hogan and who is what I thought you were going to say. Oh. Okay, we got we got Hall and, Hall and Nash. And you can pick two Hogan more. And, two more, and I can pick Hogan, right? Yeah, so Hogan would be three. Who's four? Who's four? Oh, now i got to choose between Conan and X-Pac. Yep. Fuck. That's tough. I'd say they're both a 10, but they're 10 in different ways. They brought completely different. You got to go with the click, right? You got to go with Waltman. I don't know that though, man. What would kept, I'll tell you what, the click thing would have worked for a while, but what the edge that Conan brought that street edge that he's cool. He, he, he was not only cool, but he was in a cool and a very 
unique way at a very unique time. He was on the front edge of he was on the leading edge of popular culture, not on the trailing edge of it or even in the middle of it. He was on the front end of it. I'd go Conan. All right. Now here's a, this is not a question for me. Okay. Conrad Thompson on Twitter asks, I didn't really tweet it. Uh, let's say Holland Nash, you get all worked up. You're excited to sign them. You're ready for this NWO idea. But then at the last minute, Vince throws a hail Mary and they re-sign. Who would you have tried to do that with? If you were dead set on, I'm going to do an NWO angle. Let's pretend you already had it all mapped out. Who would have been the next two guys you would have looked to on the WWF roster? It's, it's it, one there in, in three lifetimes, I wouldn't have made the decision to try to do it anyway. I mean, without those two guys, there is no story. Sure. There's no story. You could cast it. You could call them whatever you want to call them. You could make them kind of act in a similar fashion. You know, all that shit. You could hire Steven Spielberg and come in and write their storyline and write their promos for him. And you could do all kinds of fancy shit. It still wouldn't be the same story. Without the story, if there is no story, there is no success. It just wouldn't have worked. And I wouldn't have thought about it for a second. We got a video clip here. I'm going to try to play this for you. It's a, uh, a comment from Mr. Mike Graham that they want you to respond to. Turner Corp says we will never, ever, ever have another wrestling person run this program. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. So everybody started submitting their resumes to get the job. Bischoff submitted a bullshit resume. He got the job. About the second day he's there, he steps, pokes his head in my arms. He says, hey, Mike, come here and talk to me for a minute. Because I had, you know, loaned him a gun at one time and talked to him and kind of was helping try to mentor him and talk about this and talk about that. We were buddies. I thought we were buddies. And so he brings me in his office and he says, uh, what would you do if you were running this company? What, what would you change? Well, I'd already been talking to Hulk Hogan to get Terry to come work for us. Because at that time, Vince was in all that drug stuff the first time about steroids and everything, and Hogan was trying to separate himself from that. He didn't want to. He didn't want a part of any of that mess. He was wanting to do TV shows, but he hated the lots. So through Jim Barnett, I arranged for Terry to meet Ted Turner and be hired by Turner to do. TV to do that stuff and just lend him to WCW for a pay-per-view or for a TV. He didn't need to be on every show, you know. That way he didn't have to answer to Bill Watts, didn't have to do any of that. Well, when Bill Watts got fired, then I said, and he hadn't signed yet, I said, you need to hire Hulk Hogan. And I've already brought him here. He's already made the meetings. He's in. With Bill being gone, it's a no-brainer. We were having a hard time trying to get big crowds for TV. Before I went to work for them, Steve Kern and I, well, Steve really spent a year going to Universal Studios, talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. And then, but finally, I went over with him the last meeting, and they were going to give us our own studio. They were going to make us part of Universal. We were going to have wrestling shows like two shows a day. And the crowd All right, Conrad, I Universal can't listen to any more of this, brother. So the gist is Eric Bischoff never did shit. 
And he even goes on to say, Eric Bischoff should be in jail. Your response. I know you don't want to speak ill of the dad. Mike's no longer with us, but he's clearly not a Bischoff fan. Oh, first of all, I appreciate you playing that for me because it really does help me figure out if, if I'm as good at trying to control my emotions as I try to be. And listening to that was a real challenge for me. Ultimately I had to tag out and tell you to shut it off, but I, there's a lot of anger, you know, when I hear things like that. And then I remind myself that Mike's not here. I wish he was. I'd love to have a conversation with Mike about these things. But I think, look, Mike had issues. Mike Mike had issues. I'm just going to let it sit right there. And people like Mike with the issues that Mike had, some of them. I mean, this is a person that blew his brains out, all right? So it's not like there's any doubt as to whether or not he had issues. Oftentimes, people like Mike live in an alternative world. This was such a time. This is so far from the, this, I don't even, whatever. It's just too, it's too far out there. You need somebody a lot smarter than I'm ever going to be capable of being to figure out why somebody would say some of those things and what they thought, if they actually thought that the people who are watching that would actually believe it. Um, I don't know. It's pretty, it's sad. You know, what's really odd is I've heard so many versions of who's responsible for bringing Hulk in. Who's, who is responsible? You've heard the saying success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing has ever been said that was more true and applicable to at least then the culture of the people in a wrestling office. I mean, that's, that, that typifies, and it wasn't just Mike. There were a lot of other people around Mike that had that same kind of mentality that would try to con and swerve and, you know, paint a picture of what really is going on because they were talking to people that had no idea whether they could call bullshit or not. Right. So whatever this person says, because this person was in the room and, you know, had the job there. And if he says it, well, my God, it must be true. And certain people took that, took the liberty that, <laughs> that came along with that and just started painting pictures to make themselves feel better or look bigger or more important or more valuable. And I'm, I'm sure those are all things that led to some of the issues that Mike had because he, he clearly did. You know, we talked a little bit last week about second generation wrestlers. I think it was last week we talked about that. And it often doesn't work. And you don't live up to the expectations of your, especially if you had a father like, you know, Eddie Graham, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I'm so proud of Dustin Rhodes and now Cody, um, is because they're not only good, they've not only have done amazing things in their career, they've overcome the most difficult parts of it, their last name. And everybody, no, that's bullshit. They would have gotten a job if it wasn't for Dusty. Yeah, that's true. But the downside of it, the baggage that that carries, the pressure that that creates in so many ways, far outweighs the advantage that it provides. So, you know, when I hear this kind of stuff, I always remind myself of that. For some reason, Mike need to make himself feel better about himself. And you know what? I hope it worked for him, at least for a little while. Wow. Um, hey, let's do a lighthearted question. Fire wants to know, I'm always curious why Scott Hall's tag belt was missing a side plate 
why was it never fixed or replaced? Well, it was eventually replaced. You guys brought in a new design, but we do get this question a lot. You guys kept a tag belt around for a long time that was missing a side plate. I think it maybe it happened when uh, cactus Jack borrowed it and took it to ECW. Do you remember seeing a tag belt missing a side plate or was that never even on your radar? Never heard of such a thing. It's the first time I've ever heard anything about it. Greg wants to know what's your fondest. No, actually I can't do that. I can't do that. This, this jokes, this it's a joke question. I think probably this is something that Nick Houseman used to bring up all the time. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That was like, that was like a running rib. You'd always want to know. So, so last week you didn't talk about the missing belt and I was like, motherfucker, I'm coming to Chicago. I'm going to curb stop you. And then we're going to go out for pizza. Stop asking me about that. So I don't know. So you still don't know? No. Can I, can I check back next week? Yes, you can. Hey, um, Conrad from Huntsville wants to know, why did you always tuck in your t-shirts on nitro? I wanted everybody to have a clear, perfect view of my package. So lots of questions on here about Ric Flair. I feel like we've covered uh, a ton of these, but Chris asked a good one. Was Ric Flair's post Starcade Nitro promo that ended with him handcuffing himself to the ring ropes, wearing only his boxer shorts, the best segment in Nitro history? And if not, what is? Whoa. I'd have to go back into my files and try to think about that a little bit, but it would be hard to beat that scene. There, there may have been a better scene, and maybe perhaps I'm looking at different scenes from for different reasons why I think they're better. But in terms of just the energy, the passion, the the absurdity that made it believable, it was so fucking absurd. It was believable. You know, when it's like when you tell a story to somebody and it's just the craziest story you've ever told. And therefore the craziest story they've ever heard. And they kind of look at you like, this is bullshit. No, no, really though. You know, it's really true. The, The guy did really, you know, whatever. And, and then you still go, nah, I can't believe that. That's kind of like normal. That's like, that's like average absurd. That's just day-to-day absurd. Now, when you get so fucking absurd that it must be real, because nobody in their right mind would try to pretend that they're that nuts, then it gets good. Then it's TV the way it should be done. And that's what that was. He was so fucking nutty and so absurd then I'm sure the average person watching it think, was thinking, oh, my God, Rick has lost his mind because surely he wouldn't do that because a writer told him to. <laughs> He's got to be crazy. There's the magic. Greg Tomio wants to know, what's your fondest or not so fondest memory of Philadelphia? Oh, wow. I don't really have any great. I don't have a bad memory. At all. I have I have good memories, not great ones, good ones, because I love to eat. I love ethnic food. I love variety and diversity when it comes to going out and, and, and looking around town in the evenings. And I love checking out different kinds of clubs and uh, all that. And there is a wide variety of that. There's a spectrum of fun to be had in Philadelphia when it comes to either eating or drinking. Um, and that's kind of what I look forward to when I go to any town, by the way, is like the first thing I do is go online and look for the restaurant reviews because that's what you get to do when you go to a different town, right? Um, so no bad ones. 
Um, no great ones, but you know, many good ones. What's your favorite go to uh cheesesteak spot in Philadelphia? I don't remember names. And what I do is a lot like when I'm in New York, like now I'll seek out, like, I love good, you know, delicatessens, like really, 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 really good delicatessens, traditional delicatessens. Uh, I like traditional Japanese sushi bars. I don't like fancy, new, modern, put the sushi out on a little boat, send it floating around, pick it out as it goes by. I like that kind of stuff. I like when I have a relationship with my sushi chef. He looks me in the eye, asks me what I want. I am pretty fluent in Japanese when I'm at a sushi bar. And I, I can ask where the bathroom is. Other than that, I'm you know helpless. But at a sushi bar, I can, I'm fluent, right? So I love that relationship with my chef. So I tend to go to places I, like I like checking out food carts because now I can at least see what's going on back there, see them make the food, see what the food looks like as they're making it, see how fresh I think it is, how, how traditional it is or original it is. So I, I like that. Um, so I oftentimes just go and walk around and I find something that piques my interest. Christopher wants to know what was the silliest or weirdest excuse you ever heard a talent give for missing a show? Oh, nothing really. You know, they just relied on the, the standard, you know, three, four, five, miss my flight, wife sick, um, hurt. Um, that's usually, you know, everything else was just nonsense. Um, but those are the go-tos and you look when it, I just, there's only so much you can do, you know, if it happens once, it shit happens to all of us, right? You know, I'm not that, I, it doesn't happen to me, by the way. I've never missed a shot. I've never missed an appointment. I've never allowed myself to be in a position where, like, for example, if I was going to fly out to see, if you said, Eric, I need you here, you know, at eight o'clock tomorrow night in Huntsville, most people would go, okay, well, what's the latest I can leave here to get there early enough to make it to that eight o'clock meeting in Huntsville? And they'd take the last flight. I would take a flight the day before the, that flight. I'd get there the night before the meeting you, even if I didn't have to, just to avoid the risk of missing a flight or a connection because shit happens, right? That's just me. Not everybody, can, not everybody can or chooses to do that. But if, someone, if someone's, you know, something happens once, great. You know, it happens, right? Legitimate. All right. If it happens twice, now you're kind of an idiot. If it happens three times, now you're a con artist. We're done. Time to go. Will wants to know, can you spill the beans on a proposed mystery member of Aces and Eights that never happened? I can't. You know, and I, my first reaction to that was, well, wait a minute. Did we just pretend there was a mystery guy that we never intended to happen? Was that part of a story? I don't recall. Maybe. But uh, no, there's no answer for that. It wasn't like we were talking to somebody. We wanted him to be the third, their, the newest member, and then something happened and we couldn't get him. There was none of that, but I don't know who, I don't know what we were, th what were we thinking? I don't know. Joe wants to know, I would assume pomp and circumstance was in the public domain. When Randy Savage came on board in 94, why did you use different theme music? Not really sure. I don't know if that was, it wouldn't have been my would would have been something that I would have gotten involved in. Um, I would have had to approve it ultimately, but I would have got, I knew, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time getting into music. It wasn't my thing. I knew what I liked and I knew what I didn't like, 
Um, so if there was a change, I would have had to approve it, but I can't tell you why that change would have occurred. Uh, we got variations of this question. Is it true that some of the boys once saw or heard that Judy Bagwell would shave buffs, um, bag? Really? I mean, that's, I wasn't, that's I wasn't, ridiculous. I wasn't there, but allegedly one of the boys said he went over to Buff's house once and, uh, Buff yelled that he get was Get out of here. I don't even want to hear it. I don't want to think about it. Now I'm not going to get that picture out of my mind. And allegedly, oh my God. Allegedly the line was, you mean your mom doesn't shave your bag? No. Which God seems, damn it. That seems make believe though. Does it not? Or do you believe that? No. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to analyze it. I don't want to talk about it. Let's move on. My God. Oh, it hurts. Hey, when y'all were doing sold out 97, did you ever consider using Buff's mom? <laughs> You're a smart ass. What? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. No, the idea was that we were getting, you, you've, you've heard the term, you know, people use the term homegrown, like fucking green beans and potatoes yeah, and sure. corn and. Homegrown, really homegrown talent. They used to crack me up about TNA. We want homegrown talent. Yeah, that's what we're about. We're all about homegrown talent. In the meantime, and this is before I got there. You got Jeff Jarrett, you got Jeff Hardy, you got Booker T, you got Dusty Rhodes booking, you, you got Sting. Oh, yeah, homegrown talent. <laughs> it was funny. Um, and even when I was there, it's like, oh, we need more homegrown talent. They didn't understand why. If you, if you would, if you go to someone, I don't want to pick on people there because there's some people there that I still, I like them. I don't have any problem with them. But certain people you'd go to in management and say, why do you think it's important to have homegrown talent? What, why is that? Well, you need homegrown talent. You just do. You can't be in the wrestling business without homegrown talent. Well, they only know that little phrase because they read it in a dirt sheet somewhere or somebody or, or some, some young talent that was trying to get a gig said, well, I'm sure I'm, I'll be homegrown talent here in TNA. So, you know, eh, I'm not a big fan of homegrown talent for the sake of homegrown talent. <sighs> What's the matter? You sound exasperated. No, it's fine. Hey, Chris wants to know who is the smartest person in the wrestling business Eric has worked with and why? Okay. That's another hard one to answer because there's not like one all you know, encompassing kind of wizard of fucking wrestling. Um, there's a lot of smart people I've worked with in their, their areas of expertise. Um, I think Kevin Sullivan or Kevin Sullivan, Kevin Dunn in WWE, when it comes to what he does and the production of that live show, um, several of them now, uh, each and every week f is amazing. Now, granted he's been doing the same thing over and over and over again. So it, it should be getting pretty good. And it is, but if you go back to some of the early things that he was doing, where he really, really was on the innovative side of things, I, I give Kevin, Kevin Dunn a big nod. I'll tell you a guy who I think is really smart that I, I'm not sure why isn't you know, more on the top of people's minds, but is Al Snow. I think Al Snow, to me, there's two guys that I really like. If I was, somebody said, okay, 
you you've got to come up with like the greatest storyline that's ever been told. And if you, and if you can, and I'll give you 30 days to do it or 90 days to do it. And if you can do it, I'll give you a million dollars. Like if, you know, if somebody gave me that kind of a, a challenge and incentive, the first two people I go for would be Al Snow and Bully Ray. Now they don't necessarily think like me and, and Bully and I, you know, we've, we often challenged each other you know, creatively, but in the most constructive way you could ever imagine. And we looked forward to it because he made me better. I made him better. And ultimately the product ended up better as a result of collaborating with him and Al Snow. But Bully's a little bit different. Bully's strength uh, from a creative point of view and my, my, my perspective is from the, um, the physical dialogue that takes place inside of the ring, just the physical part of, of the story that's being told. Um, and, but his real strength on top of that is character. He understands character and he understands character psychology. Al can come around the back and really make sure whatever story you write down on a piece of paper, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. Okay. Let's convert that to a wrestling story. It's going to play out over the next six weeks. How do we make this work? We sit down and we write all the promos out. We kind of lay out the match and what's going to happen in the match and what the outcome is going to be. You etch a sketch what that next six or eight weeks, whatever it is, is going to be like, right? And then you have to, then you start filling it in a little bit. You take that, that outline. It's like building a house. You get the foundation and you put the framework up and then you start filling it all in. And before you know it, you're planting fucking shrubs. Same thing when you're building a wrestling story. But where it gets tricky is you take that great creative that everybody was all passionate about that's ended up on a piece of paper. Now you've got to somehow get that to happen within the physicality and the confines of the stage that we call a wrestling ring. And that's a whole unique talent in and of itself. Al is really good at that. Al can take the story. You can tell him the story. He'll picture the story, but he will picture it and process it in a way that transmits into what we would see as a wrestling match. And that's, that's those two guys. I'd, I'd have to split them. I'd split my money with either one of them or both. A couple of fun questions here. Josh wants to know, is there anyone who just refuses to bury the hatchet with Eric going back to a WCW beef? He's asking me if there's anybody that refuses to bury a hatchet. Yeah. Like, is there anybody who still holds a grudge with you from the old WCW days who just ain't having any of your well wishes? Well, golly, gee, Willikers, I think Bret Hart would probably make the top of that, that list. Um, y'all are both going to be at Starcast. Can you confirm officially that y'all are not having a beer together? I'll have a beer with Brett. Yeah, but he's probably care. not interested in having one with you. No, he's probably not, but that's, you know, whatever. It's his choice. Um, yeah, probably Brett. I don't, I don't think there's any, I mean, there may be people that would maybe not go out of their way to come over and say hi to me if they, you know, saw me standing at Walmart somewhere buying peanut butter, but I don't know of anybody that's like, oh, Scott Steiner probably. I think Scott Steiner does. Yeah, I know Scott doesn't want to have anything to do with me. Every time I see him, he you know walks away or looks away or you know pretends I'm not there. So I would say certainly Scott Steiner. Ironically, um, who else? I don't know. Probably it. Scott Steiner and Bret Hart. 
Uh, Joe wants to know who would Eric want to induct him into the WWE hall of fame. Oh God. By the way, lots of people tell me you're going in this year. Are you going in this year? No. I've heard multiple, no. multiple people have been like, Eric's going in this year. <laughs> well, none of those multiple people are Vince McMahon. None of those people called me. So my answer is, uh-uh. And I've already made other plans. So there you go. Oh, piss um, off. If they called, you would go. I don't know. I'd go and watch. I'd ask for a front row seat. Well, that's I what I was going to ask for. If you're going in, then I'm going to sit front row and cry. Like at the I'm not going in. I, I get this every year. I've, I've heard this question every year, this time of year for the last five years. And every year it gets a little bit more intense because, you know, I'm getting older and people would assume that they'd want to bring me in before I'm dead. But I don't think so. I don't think it's going to happen. But if it and, did, and that's okay. That's okay. I don't care. I don't think about who I would want to induct me because I don't think, I just don't think about it that way. It's got to be Hulk Hogan, right? If I had to pick one person, uh, and if I couldn't get Ted Turner to do it, I, I would certainly ask Hulk to do it. Oh man. That'd be something if Ted did it, that'd be cool. He, and by the way, he wouldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Ted is, mm, he, Ted's not well, and he's doing very, very, very little public speaking. And that, that he does do is usually, um, you know, digitally. That'll never happen. Either. You should get Tony Schiavone to do it. So we can at least say he made it to the hall of fame stage. That would be funny though. That'd be the greatest night in the history of our great sport. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine him inducting me? It would sound more like one of your roasts. That'd be awesome. That would be fun. If you're going to do it, do it fun. I think I just had a good idea there. Here's a good question. Christopher says, Eric, you've just woken up in your hotel room and there's a dead body next to you in a suitcase full of cash. Who's the one person you would call that asks that would ask no questions and help you in getting rid of the body? <laughs> Two of them, no one would know if I did say their names and I wouldn't use their last names. So that's not going to happen. Um, of people that the audience might know, I'd, but I'd say DDP. Wow. I might, I might, I, I, you know, I'd have to make it real clear to him because you know he's he has ADD. He's all over the fucking place. So you gotta have to say, Paige, look, look me in the eye, Paige. Okay, see these two fingers. Keep your eye on these two fingers. Now listen carefully to what I'm about to say. And then once you did that and you said it, boom, you could trust him with with your life. You know, I, the way I've heard you talk about, you know, JJ Dillon and some other folks recently, I don't think you'd need any help. I mean, you're burying motherfuckers just fine all by yourself. Uh, Christopher wants to know, Eric, have you ever had a talent threaten you with physical violence? I think he means besides the time Ric Flair threw working punches at you and threatened to take your eye out. Yeah, that was the only time anything like that happened, but you know, there were, who was it that pulled a gun out and put it on the desk? Rick rude. He showed you one on the trunk, didn't he? No, but I knew he wasn't going to shoot me. Rick and I were friends. He was just pissed off. And I, I knew he wasn't going to shoot me. It was odd. I'm not going to lie. When he opened up that trunk, talking about Rick Rude now, and there's the belt, which I was trying to get back because everybody else was afraid to ask him for it because he told everybody, if anybody tried to take the belt, I'm going to fucking kill him. So, you know, I had to get the belt back. But I was thinking, oh, he's my friend. He's not going to kill me. 
He's going to intimidate me. He's going to make me think he's going to kill me, but he's not really going to kill me, is he? So I thought, no, nah, I couldn't possibly do that. So I, I went out to his car with him when he opened up the trunk, and there's this 44 Magnum, big eight-inch barrel Colt Python. It wasn't a Colt Python, but it was a Colt. And I'm looking at it, and it's sitting on top of the belt. So I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to reach in. He's going to grab the gun to get to the belt. I don't know if he's going to shoot me now or not. He didn't shoot me. Clearly, I'm here talking about it. But that that wasn't it. There was somebody else that came down. It was really weird. I remember the office I was sitting in because I had two or three offices at that time. Not all at the same time, but I moved around inside of the complex. Somebody came down and sat down right across from me, and they took the gun out very nonchalantly, like, Oh, yeah, I don't like sitting on my wallet because it makes my butt numb. And they, t- <laughs> and they take out, t- took out the gun, sat on my desk, and just carried on a conversation like they took out a, a wallet. And it was cool. It didn't bother me. You know, whatever. But I thought it was weird. I just can't remember who it was. It might have been Paul. It was Paul Orndorff. Wow. That's, That's awesome. why it didn't bother me because I had no heat with Paul. And Paul's that guy. Paul carries a gun everywhere he goes, or he used to. I don't know if he still does. But he was that guy. That's who it was. That's why it was so hard to remember because I wasn't <clears throat> really affected by it. I just remembered it. All right, here's a fun question. Imagine Conrad is no longer able to be your co-host, but the show must go on. Who takes his spot? Matt Coon, Cassio Kid, Jojo Feeney, or someone else? It. I don't know Casio Kid well enough. I just haven't been around him, but the vibe is pretty good. And since, what were the choices? Is Joe Feeney, Casio Kid, who Matt, else? Matt Coon. Oh, that'll never happen. Um, I don't know. I I I want to go have a beer with. Uh, I want to go have a beer with both of those guys, Casio Kid and and Joe Feeney. Kind of figure out where the chemistry is. And you know, I mean, you this thing works for us. Honestly, I'll tell you why it works for me because it's fun for me. Sure. I, I, I mean, I actually I told you when we first started this, the minute it quits being fun, that's when we're going to part friends. And maybe we'll do other shit together. But if we can't have fun doing this, then I just don't want to do it. I don't care if it's making a boatload of money because it, it eventually it'll eat you up. You know, just start hating it. And then you and I will start not liking each other. And it's like, fuck it. I don't need that in my life. So I'm having a blast. I'd have to be, whoever it was, I'd have to be able to sit down and have a couple beers with them, and they'd have to have enough, they'd have to have enough of you in them to bust my balls and, and dig in and do it so that it challenged me. That, that, that's what it would have to be. If you could have one last Nitro in any city in America, where would it be? Chicago. Hmm. That's a great choice. Why wasn't Van Hammer given a bigger push? You fucking kidding me. <laughs> Somebody actually take the time. Dude, we got so put, many dude, Van dude, Hammer questions. I, I know people are just fucking with you, but we got no less than a dozen. They, 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 they took the time to compose that tweet. You could have learned something. You could have just Googled a fucking new word and learned something in the same amount of time it took you to compose a fucking Van Hammer tweet. All right. Last one. Garrett wants to know, not your Garrett, a different one. 
Who was your favorite luchador and why was it El Dandy? I just like the way he moved. Just had something special. Oh my God. And on that note, we've had enough ladies and gentlemen, but don't forget to check out at 83 weeks on Twitter and let us know what you want to see next week, right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of fantasy NBA today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.